The following resource is from lmpc.org and we're delighted to provide it freely to all. If you feel led to give towards the ministry of Lookout Mountain Presbyterian Church, we welcome you to do so at lmpc.org give. Please stand for a reading from Matthew chapter 1 verses 18 through 25. Now the birth of Jesus Christ took place in this way. When his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph before they came together, she was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. And her husband Joseph, being a just man and unwilling to put her to shame, resolved to divorce her quietly. But as he considered these things, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife, for that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. When Joseph woke from sleep, he did as the angel of the Lord commanded him. He took his wife, but knew her not until she had given birth to a son and he called his name Jesus. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Please be seated. I want to add my welcome to that of Chad's this morning. Uh, Merry Christmas to you all. We're glad that you're here. Uh, worshiping the Lord with us on this Christmas morning. Uh, as you can tell, uh, or at least I can tell because it's echoing in my head, my voice is not right this morning. So I'm thankful that we only have uh, one service for me to get through, and I hope it's not too hard for you to listen to. Uh, but let's uh, pray and ask the Lord's blessing on his word um, before we study it together. Father, indeed, there are uh, times where we're uh, more aware of our need for you. Uh, our need really doesn't change, but our awareness of it does. And this is one of those days for me. I pray that you would give me a sustaining grace, that my voice would hold up for this hour. I pray, uh, Lord, for uh, the hearing of your word, that you would open our hearts, that we would do so much more than just hear the words of this ancient story of the birth of our Savior. But you would press the truths in this passage so deep into our lives that they would bring fruit and change. And through the miracle of your grace, people like us might be able to live lives that bring glory to you. So work in our hearts, Lord. To that end, we ask in Jesus' name, amen. Uh, hope and trust that you all had a chance over the uh, Christmas season, over the Advent season, to enjoy some of your favorite uh, traditions. One of my favorite traditions that I have not done yet this year is to watch a movie uh, that was actually a box office flop when it first came out. Today is considered a classic, but at the time it was a flop. It came out 75 years ago, and no, I'm not that old, but everybody watches this. It, it, and if you haven't seen it, 
get your parents to show it to you. It's a great movie. 75 years ago, I'm going to tell you who it stars and then y'all going to tell me who's in it or tell me the name of the movie. Donna Reed and Jimmy Stewart. Wonderful Life. Yeah. How many of y'all have not seen that movie? You have got to get your parents to show you that movie. It is a great movie. Jimmy Stewart plays a character named George Bailey, and he finds himself in dilemma after dilemma throughout the film. One of those dilemmas is Mr. Gower. If you remember Mr. Gower, he was the pharmacist uh, whose career was saved really uh, by Jimmy Stewart not delivering uh, some medicine that he had, that uh, the pharmacist had accidentally and incorrectly uh, filled a prescription with poison. He had a dilemma there. But his big dilemma, or one of his big dilemmas is his heart's desire is that he would get to go to college and travel the world. But his father dies unexpectedly and he chooses to give up that dream uh, to try to save the, uh, the Bailey building and loan, uh, a, uh, a small uh, bank uh, in the town that's the only thing that's really not owned by Mr. Potter. But in his greatest dilemma, it's towards the end of the movie, and I'm not going to tell you what happened to put him in that dilemma. I'll let you watch the movie again. But it's Christmas Eve, and he's at the end of his rope. He's in total despair, total hopelessness. And then he has a defining moment in his life when an angel named Oddbody, yeah, Clarence Oddbody, appears and brings revelation to him and truth and perspective to him that he didn't have before and shows him what his life would look like or what the world would look like without him. And that timely revelation by that angel lifts George's despair and hopelessness and leads him to renewed joy and renewed uh, gratitude in life even though his circumstances at that point had not changed at all. Well, in our text this morning, Joseph faces an incredible dilemma as he discovers that his betrothed wife, Mary, she's with child, but they're not married. They're just betrothed. The marriage has not been completed. The marriage feast has not happened. The marriage has not been consummated. And for Joseph, it's the revealing grace of God through an angel, not Clarence, but a real angel. That revelation of God, that grace of God reveals to him uh, truth that he didn't have before. It restores hope to him. It changes everything about his life and his life's direction for Joseph, and it does for us also. It's the defining moment. The revealing grace of God is the defining moment for Joseph. We're going to look at this passage this morning, but I want to first of all uh, draw your attention in the outline to the big ideas at the bottom of the page. Here's the big idea for the message this morning. God's revealing grace turns confused fearfulness into humble faithfulness. God's revealing grace turns confused fearfulness into humble faithfulness. So let's start, let's look at the dilemma. Look at the verses 18 and 19. Now the birth of Jesus Christ took place this way. When his mother Mary had been betrothed, and some versions say pledged to be married, 
to Joseph, before they came together, she was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. And her husband Joseph, being a just man and unwilling to put her to shame, resolved to divorce her quietly. Okay, so here's the situation. Matthew says that Mary and Joseph are pledged to one another. They're betrothed and and we tend to think, well, that means they're engaged and that's not the same thing as our modern day engagement at all. Betrothal was far more serious and far more binding than our modern day engagement. The bridegroom and the bride would get together in the presence of witnesses and pledge themselves to each other. It was a, a solemn promise not to be broken. That's betrothal. The marriage feast had not occurred. The marriage had not technically occurred. The living together, it would all come months later. But this, this betrothal was something short of a marriage, but also way more than our modern engagement. So this is almost a marriage. So much so that in, in verse 19, look at how Matthew makes this clear. He says, he calls Joseph Mary's husband. Then later in the same verse, he said Joseph had uh, determined to divorce her quietly. He's using those type words. But before the actual wedding feast, before the living together had occurred, Mary is discovered to be with child, and yet she had not had sexual relationship with anyone. But nevertheless, she's with child. She knew she was still a virgin, but Joseph didn't know this. And think about it, all the evidence pointed to a different conclusion. So it's only natural when Joseph found out that he faced a dilemma, he had a decision to make. And in this passage, we really see two options here. He could publicly disgrace her for what he thought she had done, or he could divorce her quietly and send her away. Uh, if you're taking notes, write down Deuteronomy 24 and go look at the, the law of Moses in Deuteronomy 24 and what that would mean to divorce her quietly and send her away. Think of how Joseph must have felt though. Think of the confusion he must have felt, the disappointment he must have felt. Had she not broken her solemn pledge to him, why would she do this? Who was it that she had slept with? Had he totally misjudged who Mary was? Had he totally misunderstood and misread her heart for the Lord? What will people think when they find out? They're gonna think, Joseph would probably be thinking, they're gonna think it's me. My reputation was that of a just man, one version says a righteous man, but they're gonna think that I've done this, that I've slept with her without being married to her. My reputation's on the line and I haven't done anything wrong. Probably he's having those emotions and if he exposes her publicly, the Old Testament penalty would have been stoning. But he loved her, he didn't want that to happen. At the very least, at the very least, exposing her would mean public disgrace and scorn. So he decided on this other alternative, this other alternative of giving her this certificate of divorce and quietly sending her away. And I love, we hadn't gotten to this part yet, but I love the first part of verse 20 when it says, but as he considered these things, the word there for considered, the Greek word means to weigh, to think through, to consider, but it comes from a root word meaning hot, angry, or spirited thought. 
Okay, so think of that together. Apparently, Joseph had a myriad of emotions flowing through his heart, swirling around inside of him. Confusion, maybe fear, compassion, disappointment, self-protection, all these things would have been totally understandable. And the two options he considered made perfect sense. These two options would have been the options that anybody would have considered. All the evidence pointed to no other explanation than she had been unfaithful to him. So for him to say, I'm gonna divorce her quietly and send her away because I do care for her, that's good, plain common sense, right? That's culturally acceptable, maybe even expected, maybe even encouraged. That's the absolute best thing to do for his own reputation. It makes me think of uh, Proverbs. I was thinking about Proverbs this week. You know, when you're little and you're in the church, you learn a lot of verses in Sunday school. How many of y'all learned Proverbs 3, 5 through 7 when you're little children? We all learn that, don't we? Trust in the Lord with all your heart. Lean not on your own understanding. In all your ways, acknowledge him and he'll make your path straight. I love that verse, but we tend to kind of twist it a little bit. We're like trusting ourselves until we just can't figure it out, right? Until we've exhausted all options and then we pray, what should we do? There are times in our lives when we all face dilemmas, decisions that will, will inside of us, they'll be welling up a myriad of emotions, decisions in which we had better not, as the writer of Proverbs says, lean on our own understanding. That's part of why I love this passage so much. God's solution provided for Joseph's biggest dilemma, his sin, right, before a holy God, God's solution provided appeared to Joseph to be a problem that had to be solved. But this passage is such a great passage. It, it begs this question, just these first few verses beg the question, what turns someone from fear and disappointment and self-protection, what turns them from that to faithfulness and mission and obedience? How does that happen? What could possibly bring Joseph from a point of confusion and self-protection to a point of willingly putting self putting himself in a position of public ridicule. Well, we're about to see what changes it. What's the defining moment? Look at verse 20. We've seen the dilemma, Joseph's dilemma. Now here's his defining moment. As he considered these things, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife, for that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. <clears throat> Excuse me. So, for Joseph, what's the defining moment? The finding moment is when he receives God's gracious revelation through this angel. This, this gracious revelation that he receives turns this crisis, what he thinks is perceiving as a crisis, into a huge blessing. The turning point for Joseph is the revelation of God concerning who is this child, this child whom they will name Jesus. 
Think about, I was thinking this week about like how, how do you get your head around what would Joseph have been thinking and feeling? He's got plans for his life, right? God interrupts. Joseph's plan is to take Mary as his wife and pursue his calling as a carpenter, as a humble carpenter and to raise a family with Mary. Seems like a good plan, a reasonable plan. He's not asking for too much. Why would God not bless Joseph's desire for such simple things, such reasonable things? And all of a sudden this curveball comes of Mary's pregnancy and he's got every human reason to cut his losses and try to salvage his reputation, try to salvage his dream, go on to plan B with someone else. No one would have blamed him, but God gave him the faith to believe in God's gracious revelation that this was the right thing to do, the best thing to do, the thing in which he would find the biggest blessing. God gave him the faith to believe in his revelation and that made it possible for Joseph to do the exact opposite of what was common sense. To do the exact opposite of what would have been culturally acceptable, to do the exact opposite of what would have been self-protective. He did it for Joseph and he does it for us too. God's gracious revelation right here. His gracious revelation through his word and through his spirit it still does that today. It turns what we often perceive as crises in our lives into blessings. It directs us in our lives to, to do or to not do something that may make perfect sense to us, that may be perfectly condoned by the culture, but are things that God does not will for our lives. <clears throat> is this as painful for y'all as it sounds? I hope not. <clears throat> There's a great example of this about God's revelation in our lives through his word and spirit. There's a great example that I remembered this past week that George MacDonald wrote of. George MacDonald was a Scottish minister uh, back in the late 1800s. He was an author. He uh, was an early writer of what we would call like fantasy literature. Critics in his day said that George uh, wrote children's books and he vehemently disagreed and said, I write not for children, but for the childlike whether they're five or 50 or 75. George MacDonald's early writings had huge impact on men like Lewis, C.S. Lewis and J.R. Tolkien. In the 1870s, he wrote a book called The Princess and the Goblin in which a young princess named Irene uh, was living mostly alone with her nursemaid and guards in this huge castle that was surrounded by mountains that were full of goblins. One day, Irene is frightened, the princess is frightened at the threat of goblins and she runs up some stairs all the way up to the highest tower in the castle that she can find. And she discovers that she has a fairy grand grandmother living way up in the highest tower there in the castle. <clears throat> As you can imagine, she's delighted to find, to discover that she has this fairy grandmother and she visits her as often as possible. And on one of the visits, on one of the visits, she's given a magic ring attached to a very fine thread, a thread that's so fine it can't be seen, it can only be felt between your fingers. She's given the instructions, if you're ever scared, take the ring off, put it under the pillow and feel for the thread and then follow the thread wherever it leads you and it will bring you back to me, the fairy grandmother. She replies, oh, how delightful. It will always lead me to you, grandmother. 
But her grandmother said this, yes, it will. But remember, it may seem to you a very roundabout way indeed. And you must never doubt the thread. One of the things of which you may be sure is that while you hold it, I hold it too. I hold the other end too. So she gets this ring and a few days later, the princess hears goblins and they're actually in the hallway of the castle and she immediately takes off her ring. She puts it under the pillow just as her grandmother had instructed her. She feels for the thread, she finds it. She starts to follow the thread, but to her dismay, it doesn't lead up the stairs to her grandmother's room. It leads out of the castle and into the mountains where the goblins live. She keeps following the thread and eventually it leads her to a huge pile of rocks behind which she finds her good friend, a young boy named Curdy, and he's trapped under the rocks. And she frees him, she manages to free him and Curdy wants to then take the lead and he wants to say, this is the way we should go. And the princess is insistent that they not do that though. She says, we have to keep following the thread. But the thread actually leads deeper and deeper into this really scary cave. And Curdie objects over and over again and he points to the direction that he feels they should go and tells her that where she wants to go is just the wrong direction. And here's what Irene says, the princess says, I know you think it's the wrong direction, but this is the way my thread goes and I must follow it. I know my grandmother is completely trustworthy and therefore the thread is completely trustworthy. And she was right. And eventually it led her back to the safety of the castle and the embrace of her grandmother. And the point is this, the thread in that story, the thread in our lives is God's gracious revelation to us. It always leads us back to him. God's gracious revelation of who Jesus is and how we can be reconciled to him. The thread is the word of God and the spirit of God that directs our lives sometimes on paths that are very unexpected, sometimes on paths that we would never have chosen for ourselves, but always on paths that God says are best for us. So the dilemma, Joseph has this fearful confusion over what to do. The defining moment comes when Joseph received God's gracious revelation of who Jesus is. And then look at the decision in verse 24 and 25. When Joseph woke from sleep, he did as the angel of the Lord commanded him. He took his wife, but knew her not until she had given birth to a son. And he called his name Jesus. What's Joseph's decision? He embraces humble faithfulness. Joseph, we're told here, he awakens from his sleep and he immediately follows the angel's revelation. We can imagine maybe what he's feeling. He's amazed, maybe he feels relief, gratitude. We can imagine we're not told what his feelings are. We're only told about his reaction, humble faithfulness and obedience. That's fascinating to me. No further clarification, no chance for a little Q&A with an angel. Joseph chooses humble faithfulness. Can't you imagine he had plenty of questions in mind? But he did what the angel commanded him. And the point is this, God's prescribed obedience became Joseph's heart's desire. What God said, I want you to do this, 
That became Joseph's heart's desire. And his heart's desire, that humble obedience replaced all of his confusion and all of his disappointment and all of his fear and all of distress. Humble faithfulness and obedience to the word of God, it brings blessing. I was reading uh, Charles Spurgeon's sermon on Hebrews 11 this week. This is what Spurgeon says, talking about obedience, talking about uh, humble faithfulness. He said, humble faithfulness is a blessing. I think I just skipped something. Humble faithfulness, what a blessing it would be if we were all trained to it by the Holy Spirit. How fully should we be restored if we were perfect in it? If all the world would obey the Lord, what a heaven on earth there would be. Perfect obedience to God would mean love among men, justice to all classes, and peace in every land. Our will brings envy and malice and war, but the Lord's will would bring us love and joy and rest and bliss. And then he ends with this, I preach an obedience, the obedience of a child, not the obedience of a slave. The obedience of love, not that of terror. The obedience of faith, not of dread. I love that, that's said so well. The obedience that comes from being a child of God, the obedience that comes from responding to the love of God, the obedience that comes from faith in God as he's revealed to us here in his word. I need to close while I still have enough voice to get through it. I wanna close with telling you a, a, a story from a TV series that many of you might remember. It was in the early 2000s. The TV series was called The West Wing. I don't know if how many of y'all remember that. It was obviously filmed about the West Wing in the White House. It was a political drama. And in one episode, Leo, who is the president's chief of staff, tells Josh, who is the deputy chief of staff, a story that sounds like it came right out of the scriptures. The story goes like this. Leo says, he says, a man is walking down the street when he falls into a hole. The walls are so steep that he can't climb out. A doctor passes by and the guy shouts up, hey you, I'm stuck down here in this hole, can you help me out? The doctor writes a prescription, throws it down in the hole and moves on. Then a priest comes along and the guy shouts up, father, I'm stuck down in this hole, can you help me out? And the priest writes out a prayer and throws it down in the hole and moves on. Then a friend walks by and the man shouts, Hey Sam, it's me down here in this hole, I'm stuck. Can you get me out, can you help me out? And the friend jumps in the hole with him. And the man needing help says in complete exasperation, are you crazy? Now we're both down here. And the friend replies, yes, but I've been down here before and I know exactly the way out. Here's the point. In order to lift us out, of our sin and misery, Jesus had to come down and provide the way out. That's the heartbeat of Christmas. The Son of God sees our fallen estate 
And he doesn't pass by, he doesn't simply throw instructions down to us from on high. He doesn't simply yell down advice or provide some sort of incentives for us to try to climb ourselves out of the pit. He doesn't try to convince us that the pit's not all that bad, that it's all in our mind. Instead, he jumps into the pit of this fallen world with us. He comes and takes on flesh and dwells among us that he might fight for us and live the righteous life that we were supposed to live and lift us out of our pit and our dilemma. On this Christmas morning, on this Christmas morning, I pray that we would all rejoice that our Savior has taken on flesh and dwelt among us, but we would also ask the same Lord whose birth we celebrate to move in our hearts, that we might follow the thread of his gracious revelation to us in his word, that we might follow it more closely and pursue a humble faithfulness like Joseph did that would bring God glory and would bring us good. Let's pray together. Father, on this Christmas morning, we greatly rejoice in the birth of our Savior. Lord, as we anticipate his promised return, we rejoice. We thank you that before the foundations of the world, you purposed to send him to save people like us. Lord Jesus, even as the angel came to Joseph to reveal news of your coming that would change the entire world, we gather to rejoice and to rest in you for you are our promised Messiah. You are perfect savior. You are our reigning king. Our joy, therefore, is great. Our presence and peace, your presence and peace is deep and our hope is overflowing. For you're the Lamb of God, you're the one who's taken away all our sins, past, present, and future. You're the Lord of Lords, ruling over kingdoms and history and ruling over our individual heartaches. In you, Lord, we have complete forgiveness We have perfect righteousness. We have the Father's favor. You're the one who is the fulfiller of our deepest longings. You're the redeemer of our hardest stories. And we want, Lord, we want our lives to be marked with a worship, a passionate worship of you and and a joyful service and a love for others that's, that's fueled by the way that you have loved us. So work in our hearts to that end, we pray, Lord that again, through the miracle of your grace, people like us might live lives that would bring you glory. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen.